Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. This episode of the Smart Economy Podcast is part of a handful we'll be releasing about bridging the knowledge gap between traditional internet and finance and the Web3 industry. In this episode, I chat with James Wayborn, the Chief Design Officer at COZ. James is an industry veteran responsible for many of the design campaigns that have been seen across the NEO ecosystem, including the COZ rebrand, the NEO N3 brand, NEO's website, the Dora Blockchain Explorer, Neon Desktop and Mobile Wallets, Grant Shares, and many others. In this conversation, James and I talk about his background and industry awards for design in the health technology space, the psychology behind good UX design, how collaborative processes with various stakeholders make for successful UX design, his outlook on blockchain's mainstream adoption, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with James, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey guys, what's going on? Today I'm joined with James Wayborn, the Chief Design Officer for COZ. How are you doing today, James? I'm very well. Thank you, Dylan. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Absolutely. Your name is kind of one of those mythical names that's been thrown around the ecosystem for almost as long as I've been here. We've worked kind of in the same realm for a long time, but we've never really worked on too many projects together. So I'm really excited to just kind of dig into everything with you. It's um, it's kind of an honor on my end of the microphone. <laughs> you flatter me. Thank you. <laughs> So let's just kind of kick this off with, um, I mentioned you're the CDO for COZ, but let's just kind of kick it off with uh, who are you and, and what do you do? Okay. So basically I'm working at Cars now. My background's in user-centered design. I got into digital design back in the, the dark ages so around 1998, the early days of the web. So as we were saying, two browsers, no CSS too many frames and tables in the code. So yeah, I studied as a uh, traditional graphic designer at uni and then stumbled upon uh, web design uh, not long after I sort of graduated. And of course, back then there was, there was no sort of courses, there was no uni courses on web design. So literally I picked up a book on HTML, sat down for a couple of months, taught myself to code, also got a bit involved in Flash as well, uh, which Apple killed off recently. And yeah, just essentially put a portfolio together and uh, started looking for my first job. What was it about web design that intrigued you? Because I remember coding my first website in HTML and granted, I didn't crack open books and study for months. It was exciting and it was fun, but for me, it always was side project thing. So what was it that opened your mind to saying, hey, this is something that I can build a career in. My background was a designer. I love creating stuff. And web design at the time just felt very fresh, very sort of cutting edge. And it's always good to get into an industry right at the sort of cusp in the early days. So I just thought, why not? Let's get involved. Let's get started in it. And uh, yeah, I I didn't look back. (laughs) So kind of... um... Like going to your genesis, when do you remember as a kid or as a teenager, or even when you were first going to uni, when you realized your calling was design? How deep does that sort of desire to be in this field go? Everyone gravitates towards a subject or a discipline or maybe the different sides of the brain, the creative or the more sort of academic. And I heavily gravitated towards the creative side. It was a no-brainer for me. I mean, I, I, I first started exploring going into architecture because I, did, I, I do and I still do have a love of building. But through the different processes of school, the subjects, 
it focused on that sort of um, artistic side. That was my true sort of calling. And I even studied fine art originally when I first first went to college. But I, I just felt drawn to the graphics. I like the communication side. I like sort of being able to directly influence someone's experience through my own work. So it, it was a it was a funneling process down to that sort of uh, graphic design route that I went down. Yeah, that's really cool. I feel like uh, I floundered a lot in school and, and in university. You know, nothing really clicked for me until uh, the very end of my university. And that was the first time I got really excited about the urban planning field. So my graduate's degree was actually in the Master's of Urban Planning. And we shared studio space with all the architect students. So you would have uh, really enjoyed our graduate program because there was a lot of 3D modeling going on and just a lot of architecture nerds sprinkled throughout the whole <laughs> building. <laughs> it's really cool. I, I still have a, a quite a big interest in, in architecture, but uh, the as I said, my, my calling for the more artistic side and the seven-year degree it's <laughs> at that age you just want to get out in the world and, and start exploring yeah so this this might be kind of a difficult question you know you can't ask a fish what it's like to swim in water but i'm going to ask you what's it like being a professional in the creative field what are some of the pitfalls that you fall into what are some of the kind of opportunities that other fields might not have with the freedom that creativity offers I mean, luckily for me, I love my job. They say, if you love your job, you'll never have to work another day again. And I fall firmly into that bracket. As I said, I've always had this instinctual urge to be creative. So it, it's a sort of perfect outlet. With regards to the opportunities, it allows you to directly influence, not influence, but sort of help other people. The work that you do, especially when I was working in health technology, you know, there's a, there's a real direct correlation between what you do at your computer and the difference that you make in people's lives. And yes, there's a lot of occupations that sort of touch on that. But I think in the, in the design field and in the UX field, you can touch so many different sort of industries and, and types of people. The, the, the spectrum is so broad that it, it just gives you opportunities that you wouldn't normally have. Yeah, I want to delve into the areas you've worked in, but something that I find really interesting and I want to hear from your perspective, I'm not like a creative in the same way that you are, but you know, doing the podcasts and writing, it takes a sort of creative element. So while I'm dipping my toes in in your world, I won't sit here and claim that, you know, I have to have the creative juices flowing. 100% to be on. But I do notice that sometimes I have like writer's block or I just can't get the podcast put together yet because I don't have the creative juices flowing. So what's the process like for being able to quote unquote turn it on or to remove these blockers when you need to sit down and provide a design for a client because you're a professional, but you don't have sort of the mojo going at the moment. Is that prevalent in the work that you do? And if so, what are some of the tricks or things you can do to kind of push yourself beyond that block in the moment? It 100% happens in my field. The good thing is with experience, it happens less and less. So the longer, I mean, I've been going for 25 years now. And in the early days, I used to get hit quite hard with it. And, and it's, it's an, as you know yourself, it's an awful experience. It's very difficult to get out of. And, and you end up working late nights to try and sort of overcome it. And, and it's, it, it really is not good. Obviously, there's, there's a wealth of online inspiration. But that is just a, a small side of it. Luckily, UX design is more more scientific it's more like engineering than it is the more aesthetic artistic side so you're working to a a formula you're you're working you're working with factual evidence to actually produce what you need to produce so for example the the, the process starts with the users 
and the business, the client that you're working with. So you need to investigate. You need to thoroughly understand the user's needs, how they're currently fulfilling the task that potentially you're going to fulfill with a new solution. You need to understand their emotional drivers as well. It's quite interesting, emotional design. You look at a user's need, such as, I don't know, uh, I'm I'm a developer, I want to learn a new language. But when you start digging deeper, you start getting into some really useful information. And it actually comes down to like real sort of base human needs, such as um, the developer wants peer recognition from his friends. He wants to be seen as being cutting edge, basically just stroking the ego. He, he wants to be the cool kid on the block. And you can use those sort of hooks to make the product not so much addictive, but to keep people coming back. You are, you are tapping into those sort of those emotions. So yeah, so with regards to the sort of the, the creative block side, as I said, everything's done through, through research. It's not subjective. When I, when I create something, I don't want someone to come over, look over my shoulder and go, I don't like that. You think you should change it without being able to turn around and say, that is there because of X, Y, and Z, because of this persona, this persona. That is why it's there. Now tell me, argue against why it shouldn't be there. So from that point of view, it, it makes life a lot easier. But you still have the, the look and feel aspect of it, the visual side, which can be difficult. And I do still sometimes suffer from the mental block there. But as I said, with, with experience, you develop patterns, you develop ways of working, and uh, the blocks get less and less. So if that's any inspiration for you. <laughs> it actually is. And it's funny that you talk about why you choose UI UX. And it's something, it's a little trick that I do in my head as well when I'm writing, creating templates or having an outline for a type of article that I know I'm going to have. It brings this sort of objective sort of approach to this creative thing that is writing. So I'm curious to hear if you started your career, your journey focusing on UX, or is this something you've honed over time and you just realized I can provide my skill set and having the objectivity of having to provide research for why put this button here or make it look the specific way. If this is kind of what you've learned throughout your career and how you've sort of figured out what kind of clients you'll start looking to work with. I got into the sort of user experience side very early. In my first job, actually, one of my colleagues, previously he was a lecturer at um, Central St. Martins in central London. He's a very talented designer, and he was also very forward-thinking. So back in the sort of late 90s, HCI or uh, human-computer interaction wasn't, it wasn't a common term, put it that way. He introduced me to that way of thinking and got me involved with a uh, forum called ChiWeb which is one of the sort of predominant computer interaction forums on the net. And from there, in exactly the same way as uh, I taught myself HTML, it went back to hitting the books again. So I was studying works by like Jeff Raskin, who did a lot of the um, original work on the Apple Mac software, Alan Cooper, Steve Krug as well, another well-known author. And I basically just studied their work, looked at the patterns, looked at the the things that they discovered. The good thing about um, user experience design is it focuses on the user. And users are all different, but the way that humans work is pretty much the same. So people develop their skills from experience. So you can capitalize that in your design. Certain things become habitual. Lots of websites have abused a technique or a pattern. People are familiar with that. So then you can employ that to make your design better. I think it was uh, Steve Krug, the author, actually. His first book was called Don't Make Me Think. And that is a great line when it comes to user experience design because if you can make a user feel smart by not having to think about how they use the system or the solution that you've created, then you're onto a winner because they'll come back. They're like, yeah, this is cool. I know how to use this. That is quite a key factor. Yeah. When I was a, a fundraiser and a canvasser, I used to fundraise for a charity. It was my first job out of college. And 
my boss would always say, you're not out here to get a sign up so you can feel good. You're out here to make it easy for other people to say yes. And so that was something that was always hard to conceptualize because we were paid on a per sign up basis. And so there was always this ego thing where like, I want to get the sign up because I'll get paid. But the easiest ones ever were where you just kind of walked the person down the conversation. And by the time you got to the end where you would ask, they were already whipping out their debit card because the conversation flow and just the way that everyone was talking made it feel like this was their decision. So that by the time you got to the end, they were jumping ahead of you. And so they kind of got to say like, yes, I'm going to do this. You don't even need to ask me. And that was kind of like the ideal way that we wanted to work to make it really easy for the person to say yes and to really make it feel like it was their decision. So there's a little bit of a parallel there in, in the way that you were just describing how good UX design works. It's basic psychology. Psychology is a huge part of UX design, even in the simplest uh, way of reducing cognitive load. If people have too many options on a screen, they're less likely to make one um, selection. So it's, it's all these sort of cognitive observations that psychologists have made over the years that you can apply in your work to actually make the experience better for the users. It is, it is quite fascinating. I, I was amazed when I scratched the surface how deep the sort of UX rabbit hole goes. It's pretty deep. Yeah. And you were mentioning that you worked in the health and IT field. And I think I'm going to use this opportunity as a time for you to kind of shill your accolades. In our conversation the other day, you were mentioning that you won an award in this field. So can you just share a little bit about the industry award that you won and what project you were working on? So yes, I, uh, in health technology, basically, I was producing digital tools for patients um, in, in different sort of uh, areas, such as multiple sclerosis, HIV, respiratory. And one of the areas I was looking at was cystic fibrosis. And basically, we were putting together a support platform for kids with cystic fibrosis. I mean, it's a pretty awful condition. And basically, this platform was divided up into the different age groups, and it was catering for them in a, in a sort of conversational way. What were their needs? What did, what did they need to get out? What did, how could they best sort of deal with their condition? And um, yeah, the site went really well. And in the end, took gold at the uh, industry awards. So that was really cool. There was also another one as well for, in the UK, the National Health Service for rolling out the uh, flu vaccination program. So I worked on the initial campaign, putting together all the sort of online supporting material and also picked up an excellence commendation at the RX Awards for that. So, yeah, it was good. Healthcare was a great and rewarding industry to work in. Yeah. And so I kind of wanted to, to allow you to show yourself there because obviously with health, you know, it's such a personal experience. For me personally, like I didn't care about the healthcare field at all. You know, I was a young, healthy guy. And then a couple of years ago, I fell off my bike and split my knee open and I had to go through the US healthcare system. And now I have all these sort of opinions. So there was, I guess you could call it this, this large cognitive load because like now I had this very personal sort of relationship with the healthcare system. And I started to have my own ideas and my own experiences that shaped the way I think. So when you're dealing with something like cystic fibrosis or even the flu shot, which I'm sure now after the pandemic, people have all sorts of opinions and, and personal relationships with that topic. When you're designing for such a heavy subject matter, what are the sort of things that go into your, your sort of design process to reduce the cognitive load? Like, how do you make me feel not so bad about having to dig through a cystic fibrosis user guide to find the answers I'm looking for. What are the sort of tips, tricks, things you look at to reduce that cognitive load to make it just simple for people to use the website they need to use in like an objective way and to remove that like subjective personal relationship with it? Again, it comes down to extensive interviews, speaking to the patients, really digging into how the condition affects them, what their environments are like, 
um, I worked with the uh, Ministry of Health in Kenya, which was quite an interesting uh, project. So basically the Ministry of Health and the Cancer Alliance wanted to create a funding system for the poorer parts of society in um, Kenya. I mean, you were just talking about the US healthcare system, but the Kenyan one would probably have you beat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of, the, some of these patients were having to walk three days to the capital hospital to receive cancer treatment. They were then living on the streets for a couple of days till they go back for their next round of treatments. I mean, this, this is, and this is even if they had some funding or some, some money was pulled together. So when you sort of dig into their sort of plight, it really hits home how you can make a difference. So, so as I said, extensive interviews. We, we traveled out to rural villages, speaking to like medicine men. Believe it or not, there are medicine men. It's not just doctors. There are sort of the, the village medicine man. He, he's like the first point. So it, it's like mapping the, the patient journey. Where do they go? And you sort of map that whole journey out to get to the treatment, to fully understand. So it was, yeah, speaking with the patients, speaking with their points of contact. So starting with the medicine man, then maybe it's an oncologist in a local rural hospital, right through to leading oncologists in the, the capital's main hospital. And it's understanding each step of the way what they're going through, what their emotional feelings are at that stage to allow you to overcome those burdens that they face to make it easier for them. This, this was a really complex project because of the nature of cancer and the effect it has on the patients, but also dealing with funding systems. I mean, the, the, so many workshops with the Ministry of Health and, and the sort of other uh, leading parties that were involved to try and formulate a system that will work with their uh, existing systems and, and, and it's easy for them as well as it's easy for the patient. To make it work, you have to understand the user. I'll, I'll give you an example. I've used this before, but it does work quite well. So imagine you were going to the finest restaurant in your town, maybe not even your town, maybe in the nearest city, the finest restaurant, okay? The decor is absolutely beautiful. The chef is a Michelin star chef, produces the finest food. The atmosphere is great. So you walk in, you sit down at the table. Straight away, you've got a plate of food put in front of you. Okay? You haven't spoken to the waiter. You haven't really thought about how your day's been. Are you feeling hungry? Are you just looking for a taste experience? What foods do you not like? You, you can't, maybe you've got an allergy to them. What are the chances, bearing in mind, Best chef, expert, you know, top chef in the world. Beautiful settings. What are the chances of you having a good experience from that meal? I mean... Don't answer. It's about 50-50. <laughs> you could have an amazing experience and the chef got lucky. There again, you could have a really bad experience and you were given fish and you don't eat fish, whatever it may be. And, and this is the same with software design. You can have the best developers, best designers, Unless you actually speak to the user and find out how they need to do things, who they are, you've severely reduced the chances of producing something that will actually work. And this is where so many companies go wrong. Yeah, I want to parlay that experience into the work you do now at COZ, but I'm just really interested in, in learning more about what it was like collaborating with the medicine men when... You hear about medicine men, you think of like these hokey sort of rituals, like dancing around a fire or something like that, or feeding uh, some sort of herb to a patient, an ancient herb that has been passed down from generation to generation. So I guess as society has become more technological and just kind of like caught up, are medicine men starting to integrate modern processes into the ways that they diagnose people who live in a village? Are they using the internet to kind of update their skills and expertise? Or is it still very traditional sort of medicine that's been passed down from generation to generation? It's quite traditional. And it was one of the sort of identified blockers of getting them to actually refer patients. The, the rural hospitals. I've been working 
really closely with the, the sort of medicine men and the, the sort of health people in the village to actually get them to push patients through because they will diagnose it as something else. Patients will not see the treatment or receive treatment quick enough to actually make a difference. So there are a number of sort of educational initiatives run by the sort of local community hospitals to actually educate them, bring them up to speed. They have to work with them. It's it's part of the culture. It's part of tradition. It's not going anywhere. And I think like with everything, uh, it differed from person to person. Some people were very sort of traditional and and sort of felt they were the authority. Others were more willing to to learn. But it was one of the factors that we sort of looked at because mobile technology is huge over there. Most people access the internet via mobile. So being able to sort of capitalize on that was one of the things that we were looking at where we could actually have some kind of education via sort of telehealth. But yeah, interesting. Yeah. I used to work for multiple government agencies and particularly when we would go into low-income communities with grants or something like that, it was the whole, we're the government, we're here to help you, trust us, never worked. We always had to collaborate with local community leaders yeah, and be able to get on board with them first so that they could then push the message through in a way that their community would trust and understand that the funds that are coming from this entity don't have a string attached. They are here to help you, but you know, you're know you not going to trust uh, somebody who doesn't act like you, speak like you, talk like you, live like you, just coming into your community and saying, uh, we're going to do it our way, trust us. So that's really interesting. So kind of parlaying all this information into the work you do now, I think something that was kind of pertinent that you mentioned earlier in our conversation is that when you graduated university and you started going into web design, it was at the very cutting edge of the time, of design and the time. So do you find yourself attracted to cutting edge fields? And maybe we can start using this to transition into the blockchain fields. Did this kind of draw to web design and the cutting edge in the late 90s? Did you kind of feel that when you came to the blockchain space? And what was just your general entry into the blockchain space? What was your first project here? It was different. I, I got into blockchain accidentally. <laughs> it wasn't a conscious decision. Basically, one of my team um, in the company I was working in got interested in crypto and um, started doing some work with Cos, help, helping out with some of the sort of design elements. He put me in touch with Tyler because Tyler was starting up a new project. and. Basically, it went from there. I, I got in touch with Tyler and Tyler said, I need some help with this. Can you help out? So started doing some small pieces. Um, I think we were working on a white paper at the time. So it was just small stuff like putting together illustrations and what have you. And then it led into actually going full time on the project, ditching my previous job and uh, going both feet into, into blockchain. <laughs> what What field were you in before you went into blockchain? Were you still in the... The health technology field? I've been in healthcare, yeah. I was in healthcare for about 10 years before blockchain. So I, th- I think it was also the moving on to something new, having a new challenge. I, li- I like a new challenge, as I sort of alluded to earlier on. So blockchain was a complete unknown entity, and it was quite interesting. And obviously working on the, the white paper and, and seeing what was uh, written, I was sort of getting firsthand information of what the potential was for for this particular product. And yeah, I I just got bit and I thought, yeah, I want to work on this. And the speed at which things happen in the blockchain space, you know, you're talking 2017. Back then, DeFi and NFTs weren't even a thing. So there's just so much rapid innovation. Compared to the previous fields you've worked in, do you feel like this sort of continuous change and introduction of new concepts into the blockchain space kind of keeps you from thinking about another field that you might want to design in like maybe when you were in the IT in the the health technology field over time you were like maybe I'd like to look at something different but the speed at which things iterate and change in the blockchain space do you find that you even have time to think about what's next 
No, not really. <laughs> As you said, it, it's at its early, early stages. It's still quite immature to some extent with new technologies coming out all the time. But the exciting thing is we do have this, this feeling that it's on the cusp of becoming a mass adopted sort of technology. The technology is sound. Finding that, making that step into the mainstream is the next step. And I 100% want to be there for when that actually happens and the whole thing just explodes because that'll be, that'll be an exciting time to be involved in the industry. What do you think are some of the pitfalls that users, especially new users, because I like to ask this question with almost all our guests, what do you think is the thing that's going to help us 10x the users in blockchain right now? Like, How do we get... Like, let's say there are 10 million people across the world using cryptocurrencies and blockchains today. How do we get from 10 million to 100 million? One of the biggest things, and I found this, it was the one... UX designers are very good at not knowing things. <laughs> and I'll explain that. I don't know what a doctor does, but I know how to get the information I need in order to help him do his job. Blockchain was the first industry where to really get the best out of myself, I had to dig and dive into the sort of technology because it's quite a steep learning curve. There's so much to actually understand, even to just get a grasp of what's actually happening. And I think that's, that's the biggest burden that the industry has at the moment, preventing it from mass adoption, is the complexity of the technology. And the fact that there's, there isn't a real way to dumb that down very well at the moment. And I think that's where UX will come to the fore by abstracting some of the more complex aspects of it and simplifying it down. I mean, the gateway to, to the blockchain is that your address or your private key or whatever. I mean, you've got, how many characters have you got there to deal with? It's not something that you're going to remember off the top of your head. You're going to have to copy and paste it, save it somewhere. It doesn't fit into the, the current mental models of users when they have access to something on the internet. It's like a username and password or whatever. So yeah, I think simplifying it down, burying a lot more underneath the bonnet, as it were, to allow the user to drive the car but not worry too much about how the brakes are working and what have you. That will make a big difference. But we also need more projects that are exploring that crossover. For example, with NFTs, actually being able to digitize. And I know a lot of companies are trying to do this now, so that there's certainly a lot, of, uh, a lot of noise in the industry across various chains where people are trying to put assets on the blockchain. And I think that's where it will go. But we still have that, that block to entry, that burden of entry of the technology. And, it, and it's about just, yeah, just, just dulling that down a little bit for the average user so they can have a clear mental model and they can have it quite quickly. When I was first getting into crypto and blockchain and all that, it was 2017. And when I was doing my round of deep dives into the thought leaders of the time, and kind of the OGs back then who'd been in the space for five plus years, a constant thing I'd heard is that one of the detriments or, or barriers to entry was this user experience. You know, like they were talking about what it was like to have a Bitcoin wallet and how back in the, in the day, back in the day, back in their day, how you had to create a paper wallet and how this was a cumbersome process. And that was just something that stuck out to me when I was first getting in because I'd learned how to use Napster. I'd learned how to code in HTML. So basically like scraping my knees to learn new technological processes is just something I'd been doing my whole life. I'm internet native. I've had the internet for as long as I can remember. So in the past five years, since hearing this, do you think that UX design has kept up with the pace of other industries of reducing friction for new users? Or do you think because Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain networks are still so nascent that we haven't been able to create design that keeps up so quickly and makes it easy for new users to onboard? Obviously, we're better now than we were in 2017. But can you compare the blockchain industry to something that's been around for 15 or 20 years? 
Are, is it comparable at the rate at which UX design has improved? It's kind of a big, broad question, but... Yeah, I, I feel the, the blockchain space is a bit like those companies back when I first started to some extent. It's not quite as bad. You, you don't have to get UX employed in the, in the process. But blockchain is new. It's a very developer-heavy industry. As you said, it's very quick moving. People want to get products out quickly. And UX is a very, it's not a tangible entity. You can't see it. You can feel it when you use a product, but you, you can't see it. And it's usually the, the first thing to sort of go when you're trying to get a product out. People want stuff designed. They want it designed quick. They want to be able to see something. Right, now let's get it developed. Let's get it out the door. And, and that is what it's been like when it was like in the sort of early days of um, blockchain. But I think people are seeing now as it's matured and how the appreciation for user experience has grown. It's one of the, the biggest failings of a lot of startups not getting a good user experience. It's killed so many over the years because the developers are working in a bit of an echo chamber. They're producing it. They understand it. The people they work with understand it. But when they put it in front of a user, they haven't got a clue. It, they, they struggle. And, and the products fail because of it. So I think as the industry is now maturing, UX is, is certainly becoming more and more prominent and, and valued. And I think once we start moving more into the mass adoption and, and moving into the mass markets, it's a must. You have to. Because, you, because as we were saying, you have to make the experience relatable to the complete new, the non-developer, the non-blockchain person. That's where it's going to play its biggest role. When I worked for Department of Transportations, I often said my role as a planner was to convert engineer speak into human speak. So I can only imagine that the realm you work in, it can often feel overwhelming because you're speaking with people like Tyler and other developers who are just uber smart and so into the weeds but like you know i don't understand how to code a nep5 or a nep17 token i don't know how to add an oracle network call into a script or anything like that but here i am i write about this industry day in and day out so how do you deal with kind of speaking with engineers and developers who have these really complex very network architecture heavy understandings of the way that these blockchain networks work but you know at the end of the day you're quote unquote like just a designer or whatever how do you take the things that they say internalize it and then turn that around into something that's simple for me to use i don't <laughs> <laughs> and i'll explain ux design is a group activity it's not a singular activity. A UX designer does not work on their own or they shouldn't work on their own. So the whole team needs to be brought along with the process. So for example, when you're doing the research to begin with, you're speaking to users, so on and so forth. They need to be aware of that. What I like to do when, when the research is done, you synthesized all your sort of data, you, you've got your personas and your sort of benchmarking models to be able to sort of move into the next stage. I, I always run a workshop called a design studio. I don't know if you've heard of that, but basically get into a room, get your research up on the walls, you get your personas, you see the tasks that people need to do. And in the room you have, you have a developer, you have a product owner, you have the designer, maybe you even have a client or a, a user and you set out the task. And each person has to sketch just with a, a fat marker on a, a piece of paper. Obviously, in this digital age, we use something like a, a Miro board or something like that. But you get them to sketch out how they would go about creating a, an interface or even just a flow. You could, if they can't draw, they can use words to ex explain what they're thinking. So everyone does around. They, they draw out their first sort of concept to solve this problem. And they present it back to the group. The group then has a critique on each design, picking out the good bits, the bad bits, so on and so forth. 
They then pair up. So two people get together and they do it again with the learnings from that sort of first round. And again, it's critiqued. People talk about the good things, the bad things. And then the final stage then is you do a final design with the group. Now, the beauty of doing this is you pull all the expertise from all the people in the room. You get the designer's input. You get the developer's input. It's discussed. It's a group think on how to solve this problem. So when I'm working with Tyler and we're, for example, he's trying to convey a concept, we'd like sketch it out, talk it through, map out actually what's going to happen, because then it allows the complex concepts to be conveyed in a tangible way that you can sort of pick up. But that collaborative nature in the process, that team way of working is vital to a, a successful project. I've worked in so many companies where things have been quite siloed. So designers work in isolation, developers work in isolation. And it's almost like the designer then chucks the designs over the wall to the developers. They pick it up, look at it, go, mm, that ain't going to work. They chuck it back over again. When they work as a team right from the beginning, the developers know why something is done like that. In fact, they even know the user group that it's been done specifically for. So you just smooth out the development process. It's far more efficient. Everyone works together. Everyone's on the same page. So it, it's sort of techniques like that that I employ when I'm working with really smart people like Tyler <laughs> to try and work out exactly uh, how we can turn these concepts into a tangible output. And I can imagine that throughout the different stages of your career, the design workshops were different. Maybe when you were working in the health technology field, you were doing in-person design workshops. And now that you're in the blockchain space, you're working with COZ, the CDO, you're probably doing more web-based design workshops. So what are the differences between doing them in person and doing them web-based? And when you're doing the web-based workshops today, are you doing them asynchronously or are you getting everybody on a call at the same time to kind of be in the same digital room and work through this together? It's difficult. It was quite a hard transition moving from in-person working to working online. As much as it's easy to jump on Discord and, and type a message and have a chat about something, it's not the same as being in the same room as the developers, as the product owners, to have quick meetings on the fly sort of during the day. So it was a bit of a challenge at first, but actually there are some benefits to it. So as I said, I use a tool called Miro, which is basically like a shared whiteboard where users can jump in. We usually have that up on the screen. We've got a Google Meet going as well. We have everyone in the room. As I said, you, you need that input and from sort of different expertise. And you also need buy-in as well. You need the team to all buy in to where you're going to move forward. Otherwise, you'll do something and then next week someone will pop up and say, no, this isn't working for me. We need to do this. And you just wasted a whole lot of time. So 100% done together. But the great thing about Miro is <laughs> it's a small thing, but you overcome people's fear of not being able to draw. It, it, it's, it's amazing how people object to having to do the exercise. Like, I can't draw. I can't draw. Whereas when you've got Miro, you can easily drag a box out and just type something in it. You even have wireframing templates that you can just drag stuff off, which gets over that problem there. And you've also got this sort of central place that people can come back to, can look at, make comments on, um, revise at a later date. So it does work quite well, but you do lose that human side, that face-to-face -face conversation, the reading the thoughts, seeing the emotions of the people you're working with to probe them a bit further, dig deeper. It's the same with doing user interviews. When you're in person, you can pick up on all those sort of human reactions that you can't do so easily when you're doing it over the web. But it works well. I think COVID has forced this upon all of us to... Uh, adapt and move on so when did you first hear about bitcoin and crypto exactly about three weeks before i started speaking to tyler really <laughs> no i, I that, that's a lie I, I did hear about bitcoin sort of in the in the earliest days but 
just as like a news article and pretty much dismissed it as a, I don't know, something someone else was doing. I ask because it sounds like we've been in the space for about the same amount of time. And when I first got here, the pulling narratives were Bitcoin, not blockchain. And then it was all about blockchain and tokens. And as time has kind of like gone on, uh, especially in the past year or two, there's been this kind of migration to this narrative of Web3. So I'm just kind of curious to hear, what are your insights on just the branding of the blockchain space and how it's matured over the years, particularly as we've been here? And what does Web3 even mean today to a designer? To some extent, Web3 to me is, it almost sits above chains. It's a a way of conveying a service to users. One thing that uh, a couple of projects we've been looking at recently, um, sort of working, as we were saying earlier, more in the mainstream outside of the blockchain bubble. And a lot of people don't care what chain they're actually working with. They just want the benefits of the technology. So I feel like the, the Web3 it is almost becoming chain agnostic for a lot of outsiders now. It's just the technology, which which is quite a cool thing. I mean, obviously, obviously, different chains have different particular benefits, but being able to account for all, I think, is the way that Web3 is going, which is quite cool. I think the adoption then has a greater chance. You're not um, siloing people. So this question comes from Edge. So... I don't necessarily know what these are, but he asked this. So hopefully it clicks with you. Um, When it comes to UI and UX design, especially with Web3 applications, what's your perspective on the most common anti-patterns that you see? Mm, That's a tough one. I haven't actively looked. (laughs) I would say just the general sort of usability of it because it's not been designed from a user's perspective. It's been designed to work and get a job done. So a lot of the the patterns you see there are out of necessity rather than actual thought, as it were. I don't know if that quite answers your question. No, it it totally answers my question. So kind of uh, wrapping up here, COZ recently went through a reorg and you are now a council member. And I have... Throughout the years in this space, I've mentioned this on on a recent podcast, I have felt like an imposter because I'm just a writer and not a developer or coder. But as my time in the Neo ecosystem has kind of progressed, I've moved into becoming a, a voice on grant shares and voting for how funds will be distributed. I've been come to be known as a, a voice that people come to to listen to if they want to hear what's going on in the Neo ecosystem and they can trust that they're not going to be shilled or or told anything, you know, swayed by my own personal opinion. They're going to get objective fact-based information from me. So, while I might personally feel like an imposter sometimes, just my history in this ecosystem and my current roles, like this is just the status and the stance I have. So, you've been with COZ for 4 years now and you are now on the COZ council. So, what kind of perspective do you want to bring to the direction of COZ now that you kind of have like a weight in the votes for the way that the entity moves forward? I'm quite process driven. I like having processes in place. So COS being origins being like a community, it hasn't been like a traditional company. And that's and that's a good thing. But as we're moving forward and the types of work that we're doing are slightly changing, those processes need to start coming into place. So the, I mean, and this has already started happening of actually bringing in formal design processes, processes for collaboration between the uh, different departments, more structuring of the, the projects that we are working on. And, Coming from the background that I have done, I've got quite a good insight into what works, what doesn't work, so on and so forth. So just trying to bring that into the team, basically. But it, it's pretty good getting behind the curtain in cars, seeing the workings and 
just trying to drive the growth, trying to drive the growth, of course. Awesome. I think uh, the final question I want to ask, what do you think is the next trend or topic that we're going to see arise in the blockchain industry over the next year or two? I think the importance of the wallet is going to rise exponentially. In fact, wallet isn't even a great term for the entity that potentially it'll become. With the the sort of digital identity side of things becoming more and more prominent, the fact that you have NFTs, you have lots of things that are going into this wallet entity that really it's outgrown that that title from the early days of just being a somewhere to store your private keys and your in your crypto. So I, I do see the wallet becoming almost the passport into Web3 and the, the growth of that and the relatability of, of the wallet to, to new users, as I said, sort of uh, abstracting the technology, making it more easy to use. I think that's probably the next big thing for me. That, that's something that I said, I'm, I'm glad I've done so much work in the early days on digital identity because I'm going to bring as much of that to the fore as I can in in future projects. Awesome, James. This was a great conversation. I've been looking forward to sitting down and sharing the mic with you for a long time. Been a big fan of all the design work you've done with COZ. I've been using the products that you have had a hand in for a very long time. So uh, just was very excited to have you join the pod. And I think this was a great conversation. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It was really cool. Cool. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Pleasure. Absolutely. would love to have you again. No problem. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was really cool to hear about James's work in the health technology industry and how a lot of those lessons learned are applicable to UX design principles for the blockchain space. It was also interesting to learn more about the role that elements of psychology play in good UX design. And it was awesome to hear James's commitment to being here in the blockchain space until it becomes a mainstream technology. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.